this sitting, you know, you agree we've had a very rich panel. There's already a question. Yes, uh, yes, Dr. Murli, yes. I am Dr. Murli from Cambridge. Uh, I'm a physician by training and also uh, also a PhD from Cambridge. As I've done work on pyrosis, I'm now doing work on uh, population genetics. Uh, recently, there was a paper from Calcutta which shows. Is there a mic? Is there a mic? Go ahead, go ahead. We can hear you. Okay. Yeah, uh, recently, there was a paper from Calcutta which actually wrongly analyzed because they used a wrong parameter to show that caste formed during a caste by birth. Uh, which is the definition for caste as given by Ambedkar, if you have read his work, uh, formed during Gupta period. But then their own data showed that it was across the entire India, from the north to the south, and then 200 years later, in east of India, there's Bengal and Orissa. And Guptas were not there at that time, actually, in uh, east of India and also in the south of India. They were in the Gangetic plain. So obviously their data was contradicted. So I followed it up with a paper which was again published in PNAs as a letter following up on this article, which clearly showed that actually it formed, I mean, of course, the data shows it forms abruptly. My further analysis showed that it formed uh, during the Muslim era, and it, uh, it, it, it exactly overlaps with the, uh, the, the progression of the Muslim invasion wave. Uh, so given this, these kind of population genetics data that we have, I mean, it's very hard to actually uh, falsify DNA genetic data or to disprove it or you know, I mean, to refute it. Given this kind of like strong evidence we have on genetic population genetics side these days, I mean it came in March 2016, and then looking at archaeology recently near Sivaganga, they found a site which is exactly like the Mohenjo-daro and Harappa, which is like South, I mean like, like near Madurai. So this kind, having this kind of strong scientific data from archaeology and population genetics and fields like that, I mean, shouldn't we also be on the offensive? Yes. You using also the historic data, but like that. I mean, the, the, the German genocide in North Africa, the, the Red Indian genocide in the entire American continent, Australia, Aboriginal genocide. Using these historical data and then this really strong scientific data, shouldn't we be going on an offensive? What we, I mean, I am seeing now is we still on the defensive, talking about the Sanskrit interpretation, Sanskrit interpretation. Okay, I am least bothered. What is the question? The question is, shouldn't we be going on an offensive? To? I mean, the, I mean, the anybody, and including the, the panel, we should be on the offensive. Okay. We are on the defensive. Let me Ask throw another you. challenge to you, uh, all of you. I think Hindus, or at least maybe not you yourself, but your great-grandfathers are to blame. You know, so if you want to complain, go complain to them. Because it is they, you know, the orthodox castes of a few generations ago, who said that caste is based on the Purusha Sutra. Caste is already present in the Rigveda, which Pollock also says. And he adds that even the racial interpretation of caste was already there. Anyway, now the thing is that Caste has known a big evolution, and caste as conceived in the Middle Ages was not present in the Middle Ages. It only describes four functions in society. It says not how people were recruited for these functions, who can marry whom, and so on, nothing about that. Um, but you see, there's an important incident in the life of the Buddha that says a lot about this. Um, you see, there is a friend of the Buddha, King Prasenajit of Kosala, um, he discovers that his wife is not a real princess, that she's in fact an illegitimate child. You see the king with some maid, you know, who's a Tibetan. And so, you know, um, yeah, uh, okay. Um, so anyway, 
the king repudiates his wife and the son that they have together because they are not endogamous same caste. And it's the Buddha who says, no, no, caste is only patrilineal. You see, if, if you are a Kshatriya, then your son is a Kshatriya no matter what the mother is. Now, apparently, this was the old conception of caste. You know, when caste started to become hereditary, it's first only on the paternal side. And then later, gradually, probably first in the royal families, it becomes endogamous. It becomes, you know, have to marry the same caste. And that has, you know, evolved socially to, to the lower caste and also geographically. From the western Ganga plain, it went to Bengal, to the south, and so on. And so it, it may have, you know, caught on a bit later than the Buddha. You know, that I, I leave to your technical knowledge. Uh, but so, you see, Hindus themselves have projected the caste system that they knew in the like 18th century back to the Vedas. And that's definitely not correct. Exactly. That's exactly what we say that your point about being offensive is well taken, or rather taking the offensive without being offensive. But I think there's a separate idolatry conference in the offing on caste. So we will keep the caste issue for that. And for this panel, let's concentrate on this particular paper, Deorientalism of Pollock. And if you have inputs on how to be on the offensive or, or, uh, or uh, sort of really attack Pollock on this, it would be useful to get your inputs. Because caste is just a small fraction of this whole paper. Yes. I think uh, also along those lines, we should clarify the purpose of this conference is to help the scholars finish their papers and publish a book. Really, because that's what we're doing. We're reviewing papers, all of them are going to be in a book, so help them with whatever you can. That's the whole idea. Right? So, Gopinath, uh, uh, one point. Pollock uh, explains very clearly. Uh, in another writing, uh, what has happened that led him to this deep Orientalism? Edward Said's Orientalism creates a conflict, a crisis in South Asian studies and uh, Indology because it accuses all of them is essentially of being racist. Because Orientalism itself has become very tainted enterprise, and, and that whole profession is now tainted as something horrible. So there is a crisis and Pollock in fact writes somewhere that there is these people have become important not knowing what they are supposed to do and they are looking for a new direction. He gives a direction by saying, so they have all stopped uh, studying, there is a crisis because people think that if you study you will be accused of being one of those orientalists. So he comes up with this thing saying it is not, it, it is not the orientalist whose fault it was, it was Sanskrit that already had these problems which he calls deep orientalism. So Sanskrit had these problems already. So it is not the orientalist problem. In doing so, he is falsifying uh, Edward Said in a sense and giving a new agenda for orientalism, which is the Orientalism 2.0, which says now we will accuse Sanskrit of being all these things. So uh, therefore, therefore, this business that uh, it is frozen, it has no freedom, it is causing the Holocaust, all the social abuses becomes the new, rather than avoiding Sanskrit studies, which the left, left were doing, avoiding Sanskrit, study it to find that it is the culprit. It's, that's, the, that's the originality of it. Yes. What, 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 what
I just want to add also one more thing that uh, you mentioned uh, the book on uh, paper and Shastra, then the paper on Ramayana. Now the paper on Shastra essentially saying that uh, uh, things are codified, inflexible, and then the paper on Ramayana says that you uh, tend to uh, obey those kinds of codified rules. Now it essentially become automatons. Once you become automatons, now you can do anything for it. You can also involve in genocide. Then the third paper, which is this thing, paper of what is deeper. Yes. Right? So in a sense, there is some kind of progression I can see between the way he is building up the argument yes. and then he's tying up with the political situation that is developing in India at the same time. So there's a certain uh, intervening of uh, possibilities and ideas, yes. and he is uh, doing it reasonably skillfully. And he's leading to liberation, and he says that now I'm liberated from all that. I just uh, wanted to add on what uh, Rajiv sir was saying that um, Orientalism is a problem for Pollock, not uh, because of racism, but because Orientalism uh, projects, uh, I mean, Orientalism says that it is ideology that made Sanskrit Dharma Shastras hegemonic and gave them a legal force. And this is what is problematic for Pollock. And what he wants to say is that Sanskrit uh, Dharma Shastras always had a legal force, they were always hegemonic. Um, Indology was recapitulating all that and instead of that it should have questioned the hegemony, it should have challenged the hegemony and this is what Orientalism 2.0 should do. That is good. So and this is the inauguration yeah. of 2.0. Yeah. Uh, well, um, uh, other questions, I have some comments on this. Yes, go ahead. Out of India theory, can you just elaborate on that? Well, the fact that, or, or the idea that the Indo-European languages and their speakers originated in India, well, their speakers, of course, don't mix them all. You know, the, the theory of the Indo-European languages, at any rate, implies that languages can cross racial frontiers, because either they started in India and went to Europe, or they started in Europe and went to India. But at any rate, they linguistically converted the native population, either way. Um, now, in the case of uh, this uh, internal Orientalism, of which Sanskrit is accused, you see, Pollock may or may not say that this is racial, but at the back of his mind, it certainly is racial. Because, you know, the term Orientalism means that you have natives and foreigners. The British go to India, and they start studying India, and that is it. Orientalism, but the British in India stood out as foreigners. You know, even others who visited India and studied it, you know, were foreigners. And so if you call the Sanskrit domination a form of Orientalism, you are already implying that the Brahmins in India were foreigners, which is indeed exactly what they are in the Greece theory today. Yes, sorry. I think the papers have left all a few speechless. They've all been so well organized and ordered that, uh, well, maybe I'll, I'll spark off something. How much time do we have? Seven minutes. Seven minutes. Then maybe I should give my own comments, a few, and let's see if there are more questions at the end. So uh, let me start uh, with Asha's paper. And uh, I think that uh, it had a very extensive review of research. Uh, but uh, perhaps in terms of the overall objective, you focus more on Pollock and sharpen your critique of him because I think that it 
you know, your presentation gave the fact that, uh, gave the impression at least, that Indology itself is confused, like Pollock claims Orientalism is confused. And in a sense, uh, Pollock is trying to rehabilitate Orientalism. But he also does it by changing its vector. That is, instead of looking at uh, the West, looking at the East, he talks about the East's impact on the West, Sanskrit impacting Nazism, you know. So he's changing the direction uh, and then discredited German, discrediting German Indology. So that all that remains, as Ruendal points out, is this new transatlantic Orientalism led by Pollock, which is, to me, which is to say that all other competitors are killed off, just as Microsoft or Google were. So this is a brilliant ploy to say that now the authoritative knowledge of the Orient will be produced from North America, no longer from Europe, because Said in a way discredited the European project of Orientalism. And of course, the more insidious project is to turn it into liberation philology and then champion. But really, the question now, which really applies to all of us here, is how we should turn the idea of the comparative morphology of domination so as to include the United States, its academy, how it co-ops resistance, how it uh, neutralizes opponents, and finally, how it can raise funding from the very people it oppresses. I mean, this is just like getting cloth made from Indian cotton, sent to Manchester, produced into milk cloth, and then brought back and sold to India. It's a reject, you know, it's a reinvention of an older colonial. So I'm, I'm saying that to come back to, to, to go to Gopi's paper, I think he does a kind of reverse morphology of domination, looking at all the Western typologies uh, and forms and methodologies. And you know, if you even think about the word concentration camp, the word concentration there means the intensification of military and in that, uh, in that particular Boer War, the second Boer War context, when the British invented this, the concentration of non-combatants in one area. And so this is used, obviously, later by the Nazis, it was also used by the Soviets. And when we speak about, um, you know, the isolation and the exclusion in localities, the Europeans practiced it. They always had ghettos in which, and these ghettos were much older, possibly, because when you meet them, Mahabharata and Ramayana, you don't see special quarters for special uh, castes or communities. So, again, the idea of segregation of uh, some kind of apartheid, uh, and what about the U.S., which created these reservations? They actually called them reservations for Native Americans. Uh, Native Americans were, you know, confined. So the point being that I think what Gopiji does so effectively, which can be sharpened with more examples, with more evidence, uh, the holocausts of uh, the Europeans on their own, on others, the destruction of gypsies, Roma, etc. So, so this can be done, and and we can actually ask why is Pollock interjecting, or you know, you might even say interpolating Sanskrit into this narrative without, while absolving the United States itself as an imperialist, neo-colonialist power. I mean, how come there's that line? So, why is not the complicity 
that the United States Academy ever examined uh, in the structure of the morphology, the comparative morphology of domination, exempts Pollock in his own power. And this, you see, how area study studies begins. It's very well documented what the CIA had to do. So he excludes himself from that lens and points it out. So I think
lacking any, so to speak, objective and verifiable standards of who's actually oppressed in society, that's just a whitewash uh, to be anti-Hindu, to be anti-Brahmanical, to be anti-whatever. But I think you, you, you ended by asking a very valid question. Let us say for the time being that we don't like the kind of Indology or Orientalism 2.0 or call it what you will, that follow-up practices. What are we going to do? Are we simply going to do re-Brahminizing? Are we doing a neo-Brahminism here? Are we also going to defend everything? Are we neo-traditionalists? By we, I mean, I mean, are we, do we have nothing else to do except oppose Pollock? Or are we really, do we have our own agenda? That is why yesterday when we spoke briefly, I said, at least I come to this from the Swaraj's point of view, which is there is a Swaraj Parampara. And the Swaraj Parampara is interested in resisting domination, but it is also deeply interested in self-restraint, that when we become powerful, Swaraj doesn't mean ruling others. So I think that we have to make clear that this is not merely uh, a way to re-dominate, re-Brahminize, or whatever these terms might be, that by interrogating Pollock, what is going on is actually a way to you might say, regain the self-respect of a civilization, or whatever it is, however we frame our own positive ideology. We can't simply be negativists and say that the whole purpose is to refute Pollock, because Pollock is this great demon, this Rakshasa, the other Vaivik Peter, etc. I mean, so, I think your point about what ideology should be doing is very, very important, because many Sanskritists, you know, are scattered, they don't have any bigger agenda, the master narrative that Anji talks about there. They're just doing their own work. Many people are merely careerists. There's also academics just for survival. So, you know, I've written about this extensively uh, using the Guna theory. There's Tamasic academics, there's Rajasic, there's Satvic, blah, blah, some are doing it for moksha. But there's no overall understanding of what we should do and how we should collaborate. How Post-colonialists should collaborate with Sanskritists. I mean, it's no accident that an English professor started a center for Sanskrit studies. I mean, in JNU, the others couldn't do it. So, I mean, let's face it, that there are these big issues. So, wither in theology is important, otherwise it will be really wither, it will wither away, right? Or, or so, weather. Weather. After withering, there will be only weathering. And coming to Conrad's, I, I made some, I mean, like he always does, it's a very systematic exposition, and he very clearly shows that uh, that uh, what Pollock uh, is doing is really supplying no evidence for making the claim that somehow Sanskrit and Indology were responsible for Nazis. You know, so I think that uh, these gaps, uh, and so this is. This is actually, you might call it, uh, um, you know, political philology at its worst. I think this is what we have to really talk about. We have to say that in the name of liberation <coughs> philology, here is an example of political philology at its worst because it produces distortions, it demonizes traditions, and, and, uh, and actually creates you know, I would call it magnificent misinformation. But I think this has to be very well coordinated and again, I think supplied to supporters, funding agencies, I mean, whoever this Anand Raghunathan is, 
in whose name he holds the chair. He should be sending these things to his uh, his descendants or, or his family members if he's still alive to say, is your name to be used for this kind of work to distort and demonize a tradition which you should be evidently proud of? When you can start Exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. So, at both ends of the spectrum, yeah. in the United States and in India, because in fact, I've been at the risk of uh, being considered a bit, uh, whatever, narcissistic. I wanted to quote from my own, I mean, I won't. I wanted to quote from my own, uh, uh, you know, paper. I mean, not paper, it was really an op-ed which came out in the business standard called the deepest, deepest orientalist. And I wrote the New York Times, it wasn't published. I sent it to so many places, nobody wants to publish it. And then the editor of Business Standard, he made me cut it down from 1400 words to 800 words. And then he published a 2500 word letter against it. I mean, this is a crazy thing. I mean, what's going on in India? Anyhow, so in that I said that the deepest Orientalist is somebody, if I can find it, I can tell you, because it ends with this pithy kind of way of framing how, um, how I'll just, I'll just read it, how deep an Orientalist he is can be seen by, uh, he has reinvented Orientalism so that he gets wealthy Indians to sponsor his endowed professorship, also getting them to pay him for letting them know how bad their texts and traditions are. Knowing how self-hating we Indians are, Mr. Pollock and his band of neo-Orientalists will not go out of business for a long time. This is what I said. Anyhow, so we are, we are done. The session is closed and you are invited to tea.